the sermon text for today is from the book of Revelation. We're going to begin in chapter 21, verse 1, and then um, we'll read 21, 1 through 4, and then we'll skip down to Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Please read along in your own Bibles or on your digital Bibles or whatever, um, starting at verse 21, I mean, excuse me, chapter 21, verse 1. A new heaven and a new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And then down to verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as, a, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Here ends today's reading. Thanks, Tracy. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. I'm looking forward to getting into this text of Revelation uh, with you all. If I haven't met you, my name is Matt. I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, Today, we are going to do things a little bit differently. Last uh, week, I had mentioned that as we come to the end of sermon series, one of the things that we routinely do is we kind of reflect on the ways that God is working in and through us and how he's been doing that through the sermon series. So we're going to just briefly uh, look at the text today, and then we are going to have some prompting questions up on the screen behind me, and we'll have a little bit of open mic time where people can share about what God has been uh, doing inside of them as we've been considering uh, the foundations of the gospel. But let's pray uh, before we briefly look at this text, and then we will see what it has for us. So would you pray with me? Father, as John had prayed earlier, we just want to thank you for helping us make it to the end of this series. And Lord, we pray that through this series that fruit uh, would be born for your kingdom, 
that you uh, would do a mighty work through your people. And Lord, today as we wrap this up, as we come to the end of the story, as we come to this new creation that you will one day usher in, we desire to see what you want us to see. Lord, would you give us hope in this? Would you help us to uh, see your glory through this? Lord, do your will now by your spirit. Please help us to see what you desire us to see and draw us to where you want us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've said, we're wrapping up our sermon series today, Gospel Foundations, and the way that we've been describing this is by saying that we're looking at the essentials of the gospel by looking at the story of the gospel. We believe that the gospel is more than just a set of doctrinal beliefs. It is not less than that. Yes and amen to that doctrine absolutely matters, but it is more than that. It is a story about God saving his people and drawing them into relationship through himself, through Jesus. And as we think about the gospel as story, uh, I want to read a quote uh, that I actually came across this past Wednesday night, and I thought it was pretty apt for what we would be looking at today. It's by uh, Pastor Tim Keller. Many of you are familiar uh, with him, uh, but this is what he said in the article that I was reading. He said, uh, in After Virtue, Alistair McIntyre famously illustrates that stories are necessary if we are to assign meaning to anything. He imagines standing at a bus stop when a young man he does not know comes up to him and says the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. He knows what the sentence literally conveys, but he has no idea what the young man's statement and action actually mean. The only way to know this is to know the story into which the incident fits. Perhaps, alas, the young man is mentally ill. That sad life story would explain it all. Or what if yesterday someone had approached the young man in the library and asked him the Latin word for the wild duck? And today, the young man mistakes the man at the bus stop for the person in the library. That trivial story would explain it as well. Or perhaps the young man is a foreign spy waiting at a prearranged rendezvous and uttering the ill-chosen code sentence, which will identify him to his contact. That dramatic story would make sense of the incident too. But without a story, there's no meaning. Let me say that again. Without a story, there's no meaning. There's something very real about this sense of story that informs our lives, that helps us to ascribe value to others and to things and even to ourselves. There's a sense in which story gives us purpose and it, it impacts the choices that we make. And as we think about this idea of story, what we find is that every good story tends to have certain elements. Maybe you have a, a story or two that you can think about growing up that really impacted you, that shaped the way that you see the world. And what we find is there's certain common elements that make up many of those stories. One of them is a protagonist or the, the main good guy. There's the antagonist or the, the main bad guy. I know I'm, I'm saying these in very basic terms, but... Uh, we also see that there's a conflict, right? There's the problem that's going on and the setting in which the problem actually goes on. We see that there's a plot or a series of events in the way that they unfold, and then every good story hopefully has a resolution or the way that that problem gets fixed. And what we have been doing as we've gone through Gospel Foundations has been considering that the Gospel story itself 
also shares all of those elements. We have a protagonist being God, the one who's created all things and loves the creation that he has made. And what's so countercultural about the gospel story is that the antagonist, the main bad guy, is not out there, but it is all of us. We, have the, we are the ones who have rebelled against God, chosen our own selfishness over his goodness as we sin against him. And this creates a conflict or a tension in the gospel story because God is perfect in every way. And so he is perfectly merciful and loving, and yet he is also perfectly just. And all of those things are good, but it creates a tension because he loves us. And he desires to save us. And yet the question comes up of how can he save us and be merciful to us without violating his justice, without pouring out his wrath on us, the ones who rightfully deserve it. And so this is the story of the gospel that we have been tracking through. And the setting in which this happens, this, the, the real world in history that we live in, this is not a historical fiction. This is historical reality. And there's a plot in the way that it plays out where God first calls Abraham and then he calls the nation of Israel and this extends into the church as we get into the New Testament. And then finally, what we've looked at the past couple weeks has been the resolution to the story that finds its climax in the person and work of Jesus, where God takes on flesh and lives the life that we should have lived. He lives the obedient life to God the Father. And yet what we see he does is he dies in our place on a cross. He takes the the consequence for disobedience that we deserve. And as he rises three days later, what we see is that not even death can separate us from the love of God and that Jesus' work on our behalf was enough. This is the gospel story. And the best part about this story is, it is it's a story that is actually true. And today we come to the end of that story as we look at Revelation 21 and 22. But what we see is it's only the beginning of the eternity for God's people. And this is what we see as we look at the text. It's that the heart of God is to restore what we have broken. The heart of God is to restore what we have broken. Yes, the gospel is about forgiveness and and reconciliation and all of those things. But what we see today in our text is that God is restoring us. And that is good news. Now, as we think about Revelation, uh, you, you don't need to be a Jesus follower to recognize that Revelation is a bit uh, of a challenging book. And yet I think it's also the perfect book to describe the end of the story because it's full of vivid imagery and symbolism that can really trigger our emotions and trigger our, our imaginations for us to see where God is taking us. And I don't have time to walk through all the details uh, of this book, but there's just two things that I want to highlight from our text this morning before we get to some of those uh, prompting open mic questions. The first is this, that God is bringing us back to the garden. God is bringing us back to the garden. When the Bible opens up, God places the first human beings, Adam and Eve, in the garden of Eden. Eden being the Hebrew word for delight. He places them in this delightful garden and he calls them into relationship with himself. Many people that aren't even familiar with the scriptures are familiar with this story. And as we get to the end of the story, we see that it is full of echoes from the beginning of it. As we see tons of Eden imagery. Now here's 
just a list of, of some of the examples of that. Let me run through these with you here. Let's see if I can get that to work. There we go. So here's some of the, uh, the ways that this echoes the Garden of Eden. The first thing we see is that there's the, the river of water. This is chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me, being John, the apostle that God used to inspire revelation, show John the river of the water of life. This is echoing that there was a river that flowed through the garden that separated into four headwaters. We also see that the tree of life is in this new creation. This is the tree that was the means by which God would give his life-giving presence to his people. And it was the very tree that Adam and Eve were banished from when they sinned against God. And what we see here in the new creation is that because of Jesus, God's people once again have access to that tree and it is for the healing of the nations. It's for healing among God's people. We also see that there is no curse. Look at chapter 21 with me in verse four. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be more, no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And then in chapter 22, verse three, it says it really explicitly, no longer will there be any curse. There is no more sin. There is no more consequence for sin because God's wrath has been appeased in Christ and we are brought back into relationship with him. Something we'll experience in fullness here in the new creation as we see this, the most important point, that God is there. God is there. Chapter 21, verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he'll dwell with them. And then this continues in chapter 22, verse four. They'll see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. One of the main themes of the whole Bible story is that God once again wants to dwell with his people because he loves them. And yet because of our sin, he will not do that. But in Christ, our sin has been atoned for and we are forgiven. And so what do we see? That God once again, just like he would walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, he is now dwelling with his people here. And finally, we will reign with God forever. When we talked about the image of God with Adam and Eve and what human beings were called to, we said that human beings are called to be fruitful and multiply, but, but more than that, they were called to rule on God's behalf. They were called to steward the world that God had made. And that is a, a task that some of us have run with and sought to be obedient, but in many ways we, we have done this in, in broken forms. We have introduced all kinds of distortions to our world as a result of that. But here, now that sin has been taken care of, now that God dwells with his people, it says at the end of chapter 22, verse five, and they will reign forever and ever. The role of God's people has been restored in perfection. We see that God is restoring us in his world to a state where sin no longer plagues us where there is no more consequence for our sin, where brokenness does not riddle our world. And the reality is, as I think about that, I can't even imagine a world like that. A, a world where there is no more sorrow, where nothing bad happens, where the people I love no longer die, where I don't have anything to mourn, where my health does not deteriorate as I get older. What, what a world. And as we think about this, it is all because of God's love in Jesus. So we see that God is bringing us back to the garden. But here's the second thing that I want to highlight. That God is bringing us back to the garden and more. And more. 
In the original garden, it was full of materials. It said onyx and bedelium and gold. And, and many scholars would say that the Garden of Eden was, was less like a garden as we think of it and, and more like a jungle in that it was full of raw materials. It was, it was full of all kinds of potential where, where Adam and Eve and then the rest of mankind was called to take all of those resources and steward them and build up God's world for the flourishing of God's people. And when we think about how Revelation communicates this point, this is what we see, that it is a garden, but it is more where God is taking us. It is also a city is a place where all of that potential has been harnessed, where people partner together with one another and with God for the good of God's creation and out of love for him. This is chapter 21, verse two. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And then this is chapter 22, verse two, down the middle of the great street of the city. This is a garden city. So as much as we think about this new creation where God is taking his people and we might think, okay, I'm not even sure I can even process a world like that. Here's what I think this text is communicating for us. It's communicating that there is a real sense of continuity with what we understand now in this life and yet a sense of discontinuity with what we can only dream will be in God's goodness. Our, our really clear example of this is Jesus after his resurrection. He may be the only real example that we have in history of this happening, where Jesus rises from the dead and there was a sense in which he was similar to before. He would talk with his disciples. He ate fish with them. He still had holes in his hands and in his side. And yet there was a sense of discontinuity. There was something different about this Jesus. He, he could appear in one room and then disappear and appear somewhere else. Many of his earliest followers didn't even recognize him when he had come back. There was a sense in which he was different. But, but there's a sense here in, in, in which this is our, as we look at Jesus, this is our hope that God is taking us to a place where much of what we do now, much of what we understand and value now will be in its fullness and in all of its beauty, and yet it will be different because it will no longer be riddled by sin. We will no longer be rebelling against God. There will be nothing in us that desires to do contrary to what God wants us to do. And here's what this means. It means that what we do now in this life has a real eternal impact. It's not just about escaping and going away to some other place. We see that God is renewing our world and he is in the business of restoring all things. So what we do now really matters, even if we don't understand all of what that is gonna look like. So don't ask me, Matt, what's the new creation all gonna be about? As Pastor John put it, will the IDS center still be there? No idea, not a clue, but we know it will be absolutely amazing. And friends, this is where we need to land, that this is the amazing picture of where God is taking us. And let me say that again and maybe uh, emphasize that a little bit differently, that, that this is the amazing picture of where God is taking us, the ones who have rebelled against their creator. We are the antagonists in the story, if we remember. This is the heart of the story, that we sin, and instead of death, we get this, this garden city where God is with us, where there's no more sin, where there's no more mourning. Talk about, you know, better than we deserve. And yet this is the gospel, guys, that we rebel, but God saves through Jesus. 
This is the gospel message and this is our good news this morning. That because of Jesus and through faith in him, we have the sure hope of a new creation. Now we're gonna transition to this open mic time and I'm gonna pull some questions up here in a minute as you think about how, you, uh, how God's leading you to respond to the sermon series and even the text that we've looked at today. But let me suggest maybe one way uh, that we might respond to Revelation 21 and 22. It's this, that, that we let this future hope shape and give meaning to our present lives. We let this future hope shape and give meaning to our present lives. We don't simply just affirm the truths of this, but as John had prayed earlier, we, we embody the truths of the gospel. We let those truths penetrate us to our deepest being. They change our heart and make us into the people God desires us to be. When we talked about the, the kingdom of God, there's a sense in which as Jesus comes, he said that it, it had come, it, it is near, it is at hand, so it had already started to come with him. And yet as we look here, this is what Jesus is praying for. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what is happening here. This is the not yet that we are still waiting for. But it's my hope that, that as we meditate on this text, as we think about where God is taking us, that we let the not yet inform the already. That we let who we will be inform who we are called to be now. So, uh, John, I think you're gonna turn that mic on and I'm gonna pull these questions up to, to prompt some of your reflections here. Here's our questions. Number one, how has God shaped your understanding of the gospel? Number two, what gospel breakthroughs have you had? And number three, how has God strengthened your faith? John will walk around with the mic. Maybe you just raise your hand and he will uh, come around and you can uh, share what God has been up to inside of you and how he's been using you through this sermon series. And then we will uh, close in prayer and transition to communion. Hand it over to you, Matt. Yeah, it's awesome. Why don't we just take a minute to just reflect on some of the stuff we've heard, some of the stuff we heard from the text, um, and then we will... Uh, pray together and we'll transition to the Lord's table. So let's take a minute to just reflect on some of that. Lord, we... We thank you this morning that Jesus is enough. We thank you that we don't have to look anywhere else for an ultimate sense of joy and hope, but to you and your gospel and what you have done for us. Thank you that this is a story that is true, that we can rest in in our day-to-day -day lives, whether through the flashy things or through the day-to-day -day drudgery, we know that everything that we do has purpose and meaning. Thank you that you are a God that uh, is able, even out of our most broken moments, to bring about good and is able to redeem us. And we see this most fully in the cross Lord, we confess that we have sinned against you in, in thought and in word and indeed by the things we've done and the things we've left undone. We confess that as much as we claim to believe, there's moments where we need to cry out to you and say, Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, we know that as we heard, our, our, our works do not save us. We are not good enough, but Jesus was. And so Lord, as we trust in him, 
Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a people who overflow with works that reflect your goodness to those around us. Lord, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. You tell us, Jesus, that we will be known by our love. Lord, help us to look at your gospel of love, the the gospel that is the power of salvation to all peoples who would trust in Christ. And Lord, help us to love them so that as as they look at us, they see the, the amazing love that you have poured out on us through your son. Lord, in your mercy, would you forgive what we have been? Would you help us to amend what we are? Would you direct what we shall be? Would you shape us by your spirit? Your word says that you have immeasurable power that is for us who believe. So Lord, as we look to Jesus, the image of God, would you restore in us the image that we have broken? And would you help us to find our all in all, our ultimate hope in Jesus and where you are taking us as a result of what Jesus has done? Help us to delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And all God's people said, amen.